0: If you would open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, I wonder if you're the type of person who expects to hear bad news more than good news. Or maybe you're a glass half full person and, and you actually are someone who thinks more about good news than bad news. I think most of us would probably say that even if the glass was three quarters of the way full, we would still say it's a quarter empty. And that's actually really important when we think about our sermon series theme, expecting God's redemption when you least expect it. The question is, do you expect God's redemption? Ruth chapter 2, we'll read the entire chapter. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. So Naomi said, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reaper's. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close To my young women, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it to her for, leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. <clears throat> and she took it up and went into the city. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest.'" And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Forgive me for my voice. Uh, Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful chapter here. Lord, whenever we come to a narrative, historical portion of scripture, often we wonder, how does it apply to us? Is it just an event that was back then? But Lord, we know that you are the same God today as you were thousands of years ago here. And you, as this God, is the one who we are to worship now in the preaching of the word. Father, I do ask that you would graciously sustain my voice so that I can preach, but even more importantly, sustain our ears, mine included, for we all need to hear of your redemption. Lord Jesus, we ask all this in your name, amen. Are you someone who expects good news or bad news? There was, for lack of better terms, there was a... Gang of people in my high school one year and they call themselves the beltless bandits. Maybe you've heard the story But they were like the really nice gang like they were they were really awesome guys And they really did it just to make people laugh But what they would do is that we we had we had school uniforms And so part of the uniform code was that you always had to wear a belt, but they would they would go and like steal people's belts and then they people be looking around like where did my belt go and it was always really funny because this group of four or five guys, they were gigantic football players. A lot of them would go play D1. And and on the days when they were going to steal belts, they would not wear their belt. And so you'd be walking around school and you'd see them without a belt, and you would say, oh, no, here we go. And this would be, this would be their, their funny catchphrase. Their funny catchphrase would be, when you least expect it, expect it. I mean, y'all, I was in seventh grade, and I remember thinking, like, what is going to happen? When you least expect it, expect it. Now that is, a, <clears throat> that is a silly illustration, but that line right there has stuck with me for many, many years. When you least expect it, expect it. Do we expect bad news more than we expect good news? Do we expect God's redemption in our lives? Let me ask you a question. Why do we tend to expect bad news more than we expect good news? What have been the times that you have experienced where you found yourself in that rut of expecting bad news more than good news? Maybe it was after a streak of bad emails Or maybe there were multiple deaths, or there were some worrisome changes happening at work. Or maybe it was a string of not-so-good health issues that you had, or or maybe phone calls from other parents about what your child has done in the neighborhood. You see, when we think about last week, and we think about how Naomi changed her name to Mara, which means bitter, We need to ask ourselves the question, when have we lived more like Mara rather than expecting God's redemption? The three big influences in our lives, the three evil influences in our lives are this, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of these are constantly trying to take our eyes off of God and his redemption. But what God wants us to do is that no matter what situation we are in, he wants us to think that when we least expect his redemption, we should expect him to redeem us. That might very well be a major theme of the Bible, by the way. That in the moments when you thought, this person is too far gone, this person has run away too far, or this whole situation, there can be no hope here A major theme of the Bible is when you least expect God's redemption, expect it. And that's what this chapter is about. Go back to verse 1. When you least expect God's providers, expect it. We saw in chapter 1 there was a famine in Bethlehem and Naomi and her family, they had left the land and Naomi's husband and her two sons had died, and so Naomi has returned empty and bitter. But in verse 1, you see something amazing. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Isn't that amazing? What we see here is this, don't underestimate who God can use. This guy is of the same clan of a man named Elimelech whose name meant, my God is king, but lived the exact opposite. This would be like someone coming from the family who, all those kids are really bad. There's no way that maybe the fourth one can be something. It's interesting that it starts out by saying, and Naomi had a relative It makes his immediate connection to Naomi, which actually should be, as it were, a a, a teaser for the end of thinking that maybe something will happen. But here's what we often do whenever we underestimate, whenever we don't expect God's redemption. Whenever we don't expect God's redemption, as we saw last week, Bitterness, it limits our view. It gives us spiritual tunnel vision. I, there's actually a guy, and when I was in high school, there's a guy who had legit physical tunnel vision, and I remember when he was telling people, we were like, I don't even know what that means. Like, how is that true? And guys would literally be standing in his peripheral, and they'd be like waving like this as he was like looking at the teacher and he couldn't see anything, and we were just amazed. We were like, how does that happen? That is often what happens in bitterness. Bitterness gives us spiritual tunnel vision where we don't see where God is at work in the peripheral. We talked two weeks ago about how the names in this book are hugely important. Do you know what Boaz's name means? It means mighty in strength. How about that? How different is Boaz from the hypocrite Elimelech or from the sons Malon and Kilian, meaning weakness, sickly, or soon to be fading? Sinclair Ferguson says this. The narrator right here in verse one is saying to us, keep your eye fixed on Boaz because it may be that He is God's answer to Naomi's prayer. I do think it's interesting to see that amidst all this rebellion, amidst the time when the judges ruled, it was not a good time spiritually. Can God bring anything good out of this situation? Kind of reminds you whenever some people said, can anything good ever come from Bethlehem? But see, God loves to raise up godly men and women even in the worst times. What we need to be reminded here is this. We need to be reminded is that you can't always see maturity in someone until the right moment happens. You cannot always see spiritual maturity in someone until the right moment happens. And we don't always understand the process of how God some, some, matures someone. I remember there was an elder in our previous church, and I remember very naively thinking for a while, why in the world is this guy an elder? And then there was a very difficult marriage situation that came up, and this guy was put on uh, the commission for this situation. And when they came back to report, this guy was the primary speaker. And I very rarely, if ever before then, heard him speak at a session meeting. And when he spoke up, he had such wisdom and compassion and conviction of biblical truth where it just silenced the whole room. My friends, don't underestimate how God is going to mature you. We see here, look at verse 2. And Ruth the the Moabite, notice that in the entire book of Ruth, it's going to put a lot of emphasis there until the very end about how she's a Moabite. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Ruth takes the initiative. And whenever we do not expect God to redeem us, we will not step out in faith. Ruth has a different understanding from what she's, ironically, what she's heard, no doubt, from Naomi and Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, that this covenant-keeping God is a God, is a God who can redeem things. And so she steps out in faith. Here's what's very interesting about Naomi. You actually saw in chapter 1, verse 6, That Naomi was in the fields in Moab, but she's not going to go to the fields here. It seemed as if she had more hopes in Moab, but not back in God's land. She seems to still be sitting, posturing herself in bitterness, And brothers and sisters, we need to also be reminded about bitterness. Bitterness often grows when we do nothing but focus on our current situation. Bitterness grows when you constantly play the film over and over about that one particular moment, but you don't think about how you need to step out in faith right now. Often in this bitterness, we despair over many different things. Maybe it's just our own personal sin or maybe it's the sins of others, maybe it's our sad circumstances, but when we just dwell on those situations, whenever we just stay here in this moment of not expecting God to redeem us, we just boil in bitterness and we never move. The question we need to ask ourselves again is this, what news are you expecting? Let me ask, let me ask us this. What type of news do we spread in this community? Is it news of gossip? Is it news of just the next bad thing that we inevitably see on the news or on Twitter? Or are we actually a good news church? Are we a church that actually focuses on, doesn't ignore the bad things by any means, but are we a church that actually encourages each other where God is at work? My friends, there is enough bad news out there for 10,000 lifetimes. Can we get some good news? One of the reasons why a congregation can wallow in bitterness and despair is because we don't think about good news. But see, you see, Ruth here is that faith, in faith, she doesn't sit around and wait. That's exactly what Satan wants us to do. Satan wants to paralyze us with fear and anxiety and bitterness and despair. That's often why, often, not all the time, but often why depression is the combination of anger and anxiety. And Satan loves to cripple us so that we just sit around, but Ruth gets up and moves. She moves despite the dangers. She's not foolish but she's not stale. See, sometimes we overthink God's will because we don't move in his ordinary providence. Some of you are maybe facing some situations right now. Maybe it's, what job am I going to have after I graduate college? What internship am I going to have this summer? Are we going to be able to have kids? What high school is my child going to be able to go to? What college are they going to be able to get in? Or, What in the world are we going to do whenever the finances of our home gets better? You're paralyzed by these situations. And often what can happen to us is that any of these situations that we're in, we can sit back and say, well, God better give a miracle, but we don't acknowledge his ordinary providence. God does work in the extraordinary, but often he works in the extraordinary by being very ordinary. Because God's an approachable God. He's he's the one who approaches us. Let me ask you some questions to think about. What opportunities, what people, what material has God placed right in your life right now that you're overlooking? And therefore, because you're overlooking that, you don't think he can redeem your situation. It's kind of like the old... Illustration my dad used to give me about how a man was drowning at sea and he was praying that God would save him. And at one point, there's a a fisherman who drove by in a boat and he didn't wave, he didn't try to get on the boat or anything. So the guy kept driving by. And then there was, you know, a bigger yacht that drove by and it was right there within distance. He just sat there saying, No, I'm going to wait on a miracle. And then there was a Coast Guard ship that drove by, still didn't do anything. I'm going to wait on a miracle. Well, drowned, and as this parable goes, he gets to heaven, and he says, God, why didn't you save me? And he says, well, I sent you three different boats. But oftentimes, we do that same thing. <clears throat> you see, what good can come from this situation from Ruth the Moabite? It's not the type of person we would think redemption could come from, but she steps out in faith. She's always going to be, at least in the eyes of the people for a long time, she's going to be known as Ruth the Moabite. It would be the first thing people would know about her. It would be the way they would treat her. It would be the way that they talk about her behind her back. When it says Ruth the Moabite, and I know we're spending a lot of time on these one first two verses, but it really does launch into the text. When we think about Ruth the Moabite, it would only remind the people of Israel about their sin. Do you think God does this to you and me? Well, that's Wilson the liar. Hey, Gabriel, I don't know if you knew this, but that's Wilson the liar, that's Wilson the adulterer, that's Wilson the gossip, that's Wilson the whatever, And only remember him that way. But isn't that often what we do to each other? I know some people who, whenever you talk about how the Lord's done anything in their life, they will always say this, well, you know who their parents are, don't you? Well, you know what they used to be involved in, don't you? My friends, why do we remember people in a way that God does not remember them? Because God says that I will remember their sins no more. Because even someone like Ruth is someone who God can redeem. She goes out into the field, and no doubt it proclaims that she's a very hard worker. It says that she only took a very short rest, and it makes me feel a lot of shame for not working out for many years. She's a hard worker, but I love what happens in verse 3. It says this that she went out into a field, and then watch this, and she happened. Isn't that amazing? This is how you can believe that the Bible's inspired because this is not random. When it says that, and she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, it feels to her and to everyone else, pff, this just seemed random. But it is not at all random because God is sovereignly watching over all this. You did not, whether student, child, or whoever, You did not just happen to be in Stillwater. God brought you here. And he brought you here for a reason, and not just a self-centered reason for you, but a reason for other people so that God could love them through you. Nothing about life is random, even though it might feel like it. God loves to provide through the very ordinary. I think it's a very important point that we need to remember about expecting God's redemption. When we look at this text, what we need to remember is this. Whenever we look at any biblical text, we often think a lot about application. How does this practically apply to my life? And application is very important, and there's no such thing as theology that does not apply to real life. That's why God has given it to us. But oftentimes in Scripture, the application is not first and foremost, do this, but actually it is first and foremost, believe this. We're so obsessed in our modern church, modern big C church, evangelicalism today, we're so obsessed with the practical and doing and doing and doing that in a lot of ways, as one author says, it's almost as if we're prostituting the text so that we can just have a better life. And that's a big, bold statement. We're so obsessed with just thinking, how can this text enhance my life? And we forget that this text is first and foremost about God. It is about beholding your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first application whenever you read the Bible is worship him. My friends, what happens whenever we have the the mindset of, oh, I gotta figure out what I can get out of this text so it can change the way I live this week? What happens when you hear a sermon on the cross? What are you supposed to do there? 10 easy steps to make your life better. My friends, the application there is, bow down and behold the Savior of sinners. We have way too much of a man-centered view of how we read the Bible and not a God-centered view. And what this text is telling us here is this, believe that God will provide for you. Expect that God will redeem you. Oftentimes, we, we doubt God's redemption, and we can blame it on our personality. We can blame it on the fact that, well, other people around us also have doubts. Or, or we say, well, really, I'm just doubting myself. But my friends, actually, often you're doubting God. Horatius Bonner, this is a great quote. I've needed this for my own life. Horatius Bonner once said this, it is not good to be always doubting And when you're challenged to make the untrue excuse that you're only doubting yourself and not God, that you are somehow only dissatisfied with your own faith but not with the object of your faith, oftentimes our doubts are not actually because of the weakness of our faith but because we look at God and we say, well, because I can't make good out of this situation, then you can't. My friends, God is way bigger than us. Amen? I know I'm speaking very hoarsely right now, (laughs) but God's screaming to your conscience. And the first and foremost application here for you this morning is this I don't know what exact situation you're facing right now, but there is nothing in your life that God cannot redeem. It's amazing. And we need to be okay with that. I know it might feel scary. But this is who our God is. When you least expect it, expect it. You see, Boaz, he comes from Bethlehem. And he says, the Lord be with you. And they respond back, the Lord bless you. It's this God-centered, this covenant focus, this hope-driven greeting. <clears throat> Excuse me, Boaz is a man who is, clearly focused on God, one of the questions we might want to ask is, has this guy never seen hard times? Listen, Boaz stayed there during the famine. He was affected, mightily affected by this. But often what God does to make us more God-centered is he actually lets suffering come into our life. It's actually so interesting. Martin Luther will call this... The way of the cross is that oftentimes God will bring the exact opposite of what we think would be beneficial, and it actually makes us have faith. It's kind of like, I was telling, I've told our UF students this before. I think I've used this. I think I've used this everywhere. So here you go, repeat. It's like when you're working out and you're doing pull-ups. There you go. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I don't even need to finish. Um, If you're going to do 10 pull-ups, it's not the first eight that you're just, you're rep, well, maybe you, not me. Um, You're just just repping out. For me, I'm like, oh, I'm just trying to get one. Uh, It's not the first eight that are really going to get you strong. It's the ones that you're shaking on nine and 10 where gravity feels very strong. That's what makes you stronger. My friends, God often brings situations where life feels very heavy and you feel most weak because that's when you look to him most. So maybe you're praying for more faith right now. And God's bringing some tough times on you. <laughs> Welcome to the club. He knows what he's doing. You see, you do ask the que- need to ask the question, how much would a man like Boaz undoubtedly influence his co-workers You see, Boaz had learned personally to see his God as big. And you see his influence rubbing off on his coworkers there where he says, the Lord be with you and they say, the Lord bless you. My friends, the first movement of evangelism is that God be big in your life or else he will never be big in someone else's life. It's interesting that Boaz does not call Ruth the Moabite. Did you notice that? Look at verse 5. This always happens to me in the winter, by the way, where my voice is just terrible. He says, whose young woman is this? He doesn't call her, hey, who's that Moabite? And isn't that what God does to us? Oftentimes people only think about the things that we've done, but God looks at you. Boaz notices her and he initiates a conversation with her. And here's what's so interesting. What attracts Boaz to Ruth? It's her character. Notice that they they described in verse 7 how hardworking she is. And so he goes to her then. We have high school and college. We have middle school students in here, colleges. We have people who are not married in here. Let me give you a little biblical piece of advice here. People get divorced, let me put it this way, good-looking people get divorced all the time. Good-looking people get divorced all the time, but it is not their good looks that cause them to get divorced, it's their character. So if that's the case, then shouldn't the first and foremost thing that we look for in a spouse, and then actually when you get married, the first and foremost thing that we should seek to cultivate is character. Character just a thought. But it is interesting here is that in the way that the Hebrew Old Testament used to be organized, do you know what book of the Bible came before the book of Ruth in the Hebrew Old Testament? This is really cool. Yeah, who said that? Let's go. Here we go. (laughs) Y'all will know. If you know Ryan, you'll understand. Um, Thank you. Yes. And for the people who've read Proverbs, what chapter comes at the end? I'm just not going to put it on the spot. Chapter 31. Have y'all heard about the, you know, what's commonly known as the Proverbs 31 woman? Do you know what the book of Ruth is one of the biggest points of the book of Ruth is? She's the Proverbs 31 woman. The Bible's awesome. He comes up to her and he calls her. Notice again, he does not call her, hey, you Moabite. He says, my daughter. And that's exactly what God does to us. He gives her protection. You see that this is what a Christian will do when they're able to do it in the ways that they can do it. They will help provide protection to those who are in need. See, too often in churches, <clears throat> too often in churches, we love to go on sin hunts rather than provide protection. We love to, whenever someone actually does walk in and whether they are literally living on the street and we can see that by the way that they're dressed, or we know that they're the prostitute who stands on the street corner at night and when they walk into church because they've finally gotten to a point where they realize I need some good news, yet how often... Can a church only look at that person and say, We know where you come from? Ruth responds in a way that shows that she's amazed at God's grace. She bows down. She doesn't say, she doesn't say to Boaz, Well, this is what I deserve, so I'm glad you're finally giving it to me. She does not do that. She falls down because she knows that it is all by grace that she has this protection. And that's That's what the Christian life is. None of us can look to God and say, I deserve this redemption. I deserve this providence. I heard a story about a guy who would just pray over every single meal and snack that he had. And he was with some people and he had a Klondike bar. And before he ate it, he just said a silent prayer. And these guys were like, dude, relax. Relax. But maybe this guy was so gripped by the reality of God's providence that even something as small and trite and as tasty as a Klondike bar can remind him of how God provides. Boaz praises her. He blesses her. I do think it's interesting, no doubt, he knew, Boaz knew who the Moabites were. And no doubt, as the gossip was going around town, they would have known, well, here's one of those Moabite women. We know what's happened in the past with them. Don't don't be surprised if she tries to lead you astray. You have to read between the lines there a little bit, because when Boaz responds to her, he actually does not talk about that. He praises her for her work. In other words, maybe this is more so by implication, but it's this. When we grow in godliness, we know how to sort through the bad news and the good news. We know how to go on a grace hunt with someone, even if there's sin. Boaz knows she comes from an idol-worshiping land, but he sees the work of God in her life. You might be asking the question, if we are Hebrew scholars, well, what about Deuteronomy 23 where it says that a Moabite should never be allowed in God's assembly? Ooh, that is a problem. Unless you think about this, don't you see how Ruth is being allowed to come into the assembly of God because someone else will be treated as a Moabite on the cross Do you not see that you and I are able to come into the assembly of God because someone else was treated as the worst sinner? The only way where we are, where we are given entrance into the kingdom of God is if Jesus Christ was exiled on the cross. It is no coincidence that when Jesus died on the cross, the cross and the location was not in the city walls of Jerusalem. It was outside the city walls. He had to come out. He had to come down to get us. And that's how we get entrance. Boaz, he, he graciously pursues Ruth. He draws near to her just like Jesus draws near to us. And it says that he even invites her over, look at verse 14, he invites her over for for lunch during their break, and he feeds her, and it's almost as if it's the picture of whenever you go to your grandparents' house, and for Thanksgiving, they don't just feed you a meal, but they just keep giving you leftover plates, and you're like, I don't even know what to do with all this. I feel that way whenever I go over to Eddie's house sometimes, and I'm like, man, I, I got way more than I bargained for. God does not just provide the exact amount of what you need. He sends you home with leftovers. The question is this, do you see it? Do you notice it? Are we helping each other notice it? She ended up, verse 17, she gleans in the field until evening, and then she brings home when it says it's an epha of barley that would have been 30 pounds in other words this is not like when you go to the store they give you a you know a thin deli slice of meat this is like going to Costco and they got to give you a crate to take that thing out the whole point of this chapter and yes there is humor in the bible by the way the whole point of this chapter is to see are you expecting God to redeem you? Are you expecting God to redeem you just a meager amount? Do you think that your sin problem or your suffering or that addiction that a family member has or the divorce that someone has gone through or maybe this person's on their fifth spouse and do you look at that person or maybe you look at yourself and you say, I don't know what good God can bring out of this. I don't know if anything good can come out of Bethlehem. My friends, Jesus Christ can. God loves to prove you and me wrong. (laughs) Just get used to it. He loves doing it. That's why he chose the unprofessional men to be his original apostles. my friends, do you expect more good news from God or bad news? We see here how it ends with God not just providing people, not just the nature of his provision, but also even some of the tangible things. And we see that how these tangible things, as they work their way into the lives of Ruth and Naomi, you see Naomi begin to fall out, as it were. Excuse me. I have a, a wood pellet smoker, and I keep my wood pellets in these very, very good-looking orange and green plastic buckets. They're so good-looking, so if you drive by our yard, you're like, that's a yard I want it to look like. But one of the things that happens on these buckets, especially during the wintertime, is that it will often rain, and then overnight, that water that gathers on the top of the buckets, it'll freeze and I learned the hard way is that if you want to get that ice off, you don't try to like just break the ice while it's still on the bucket. Because when I broke the ice when it was still on the bucket, I, I had punched a hole into the actual top of the bucket as well. So both of them broke. Sometimes tough love is not the answer, sometimes it is. Sometimes God is like in Genesis 32 where he just UFC wrestles us like he did with Jacob. Sometimes it's tender and it's patient and it's kind. And you watch someone fall out over time even when they're most bitter, even when they're most cold. And what you will see in the book of Ruth is actually how God is working in Naomi's life where it began with her being bitter and it will end with her actually living like Naomi, which means happiness, pleasant. And that's what God's grace does. God provides and he provides and he provides and slowly but surely for all of his people, it thaws us out. See, the whole thing is just amazing, and it ends here in verse 23 where it says that she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, which, by the way, would be the time of Pentecost when the New Testament came. Uh, She lived with her mother-in-law. I think it's amazing is that what you see here is that before the time of harvest comes, there is often a time of famine. What do you think the disciples were thinking whenever Jesus was still in the grave? What do you think was going on in their mind when they had spent years following this guy, promoting this guy's ministry, saying, this is finally the Messiah, this is the greater David? And he died. Oh, and by the way, people are also trying to kill you because you followed him. What would they have been thinking in that room when they gathered together, many of them saying, how in the world are we going to move forward in this? We get a hint in John uh, John 20, verse 19, when it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, My friends, they were living in fear because they did not expect God's redemption. Do you think you have a sin problem that is too much for God to redeem? Maybe you've been fired from your job or maybe there's plaguing health issues. Maybe there's the feeling of your enemies being relentless to conquer you. Maybe there's the long history of family strife. Maybe there's that one moment from your past that you or no one else will let go. Maybe there's that financial mistake. And you're sitting there in your faith and you're stale, you're stagnant, and the doors are locked. And you think there's no way God can move. But if you keep reading in John 20, 19, it goes on to say this. Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, Peace be with you. My friends, are we living with this kind of expectation? Are we mutually encouraging each other to have this kind of expectation? Are we expecting God to save the worst sinners, to redeem the worst suffering, to restore the broken relationships? Are we praying for this? And are we stepping out in faith in light of this? That's the question for you and me. How will we respond? Let's pray. Father, we do ask then your mercy that we would respond knowing that there's grace and mercy for us. Father, you are the God who redeems. That is literally who you are. Help us to, to view you and see you as that. And would you begin the thawing out process in our lives. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.